Hello, welcome to Health with Parkinson's podcast number 11. Our guest today is Dr. Subramanian, movement disorder specialist from Hershey Medical Center. Welcome to the show. Hi, Warren. Thanks for inviting me again. Good. Our topic today is a subject that's rarely talked about. It's late-stage Parkinson's. Altogether, there's five stages. There's also a rating scale. Dr. Sub, could you go over the differences with the stages and the rating scale? Yes. Thank you for, uh, again, bringing up this very uh, interesting and not uh, often talked about uh, topic. So uh, the staging of Parkinson's disease is very old. Uh, it came from two investigators uh, from the New York area, Melvin Yar and um, Hohn. So Hohn and Yar scale, sometimes called H and Y scale, uh, was devised well in the late 60s. So before uh, levodopa, carbidopa, the mainstay of Parkinson's disease was available, this stage was uh, put together. And what this staging uh, really means is how the natural course of the disease progresses from stage one through five. And stage one essentially is patients who are affected only on one side of the body, what we call hemi-Parkinsonism. Hemi means half. Parkinsonism is, of course, Parkinson's disease features. And typically, this is seen in very early stages of the disease where only one hand is shaking, and typically they are very stable. They can walk well. They don't have falls. They don't have major complications from therapy. And most of the time in stage one, medications are very effective. Stage two means both sides of the body are affected. So in this case, if it started on the left side, it would have now moved on to the right side. So right and left side of the body are affected. This is called stage two. Stage three typically means that there are some uh, balance uh, problems. So typically, they're already in stage two and now starting to have difficulty with balance. Uh, stage four uh, is uh, more advanced than stage three, uh, but uh, it's much rarer. We don't see a lot of these such patients anymore because the treatments have become much more effective. Uh, and before I describe stage four, I want to talk about stage five because stage five is where you're bedbound, unable to do anything, not able to ambulate, uh, and you're essentially uh, bedridden. So that means stage four is before you get to bedridden, but you're already having significant falls, you're having significant disabilities. So this is considered stage four. So again, just to recollect, stage one is unilateral disease or hemi-Parkinsonism. Stage two is bilateral disease. Stage three is where your balance is off kilter. And then stage four is beyond balance. You're also falling uh, repeatedly. And stage five is where you are bedbound and unable to move. So this is the horn in your stage. Now, for obvious reasons, the listeners would recognize that since treatments have come about, the staging has become somewhat archaic because, as I already mentioned, stage four and stage five is relatively rare uh, because we have effective treatments that overcome this. Now, as far as rating scale goes, which is uh, called the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale, this does involve uh, testing the patient by asking a series of questions for the uh, first part one and part two, but part three, which is where the doctor is testing different parts of your body by looking at speed of movement, for example, tapping of your fingers, 
opening and closing of your fist, uh, tapping on the floor with your legs, uh, crossing your hands and getting up from the chair, um, also holding your hands out and then touching your nose to see whether there's tremor or not, uh, making the patient walk 30 feet and turn around and come back, and also do what we call the pull test, where we uh, try to tip you over backwards, but uh, try to maintain balance. Now, these tests are important because this is how we determine whether one side of the body is affected, the other side is affected, or if your balance is affected. And that, in turn, allows us to rate you on stage one, two, three, et cetera. As I already said, the staging has become archaic, although it sometimes gives you some directive on how to make your treatments, uh, especially in stage one, two, and three. But four and five, as I already said, is relatively rare, and we don't see many patients in stage uh, three, uh, sorry, stage four and stage five. So I hope this gives you an overview of what the staging is and how the rating scales are used. Good. And uh, you just touched on this a little bit, but with as far as your personal patients go, do you find that the current treatments available, you have less of your patients now in the latest stages? Yes. So I cannot remember the last time I had a Parkinsonian uh, patient who is in stage five. So let me clarify. We're talking about straightforward idiopathic Parkinson's disease, the kind of disease that Michael J. Fox has and uh, Muhammad Ali had and other types of patients. These are patients who respond to their medications and behave in such a way that they have a natural progression of the disease that respects what James Parkinson's discovered 200 years ago. Such patients uh, today in 2018 can be very well managed to the point that they never get to stage five or stage four. They, most of them maybe get to stage three. Very rarely do they get to stage four. Now that's different from uh, Parkinson plus syndrome. So for example, patients who have multisystem atrophy, patients who have other forms of Parkinsonism, not idiopathic Parkinson's disease, they do advance to this more advanced stage where they are hospitalized or they are bedridden sort of situation. But uh, these are two distinct entities, and we do need to make the distinction. So the important point, which Warren already mentioned, is that if you have the idiopathic form of Parkinson's disease, what we call idiopathic Parkinson's disease, and that's correctly named Parkinson's disease, such patients will really respond to medications. And since we have a wide variety of treatments available, they can be very well controlled um, well into 20, 30 years, 40 years into the disease. Good. And uh, do you feel that a healthy diet and regular exercise play a factor in you not seeing as many patients besides the medications available? Right. So that is a great uh, point that now that the motor disabilities are well controlled. So again, going back to how when Dr. Melvin Yar and Hone made the scale before the availability of uh, levodopa carbidopa, one of the issues that used to happen and that generation of patients in the 60s is that uh, because they were so impaired, they were not able to move, they had difficulty with feeding, many of them had malnutrition, uh, they could not do proper exercise, so on and so forth. Now, today, in this age, we have good medications that the medication by themselves allow to improve the mobility of the patient, 
also diet can be maintained and uh, therefore the wellness of the patient can be maintained but along the same lines it's also important that um, even though you have parkinson's you have to maintain a good balanced nutritious diet every day and that means eating proper amount of carbohydrates fats and proteins and try to include as much fruits and vegetables as possible this will allow a lot of different things to happen number 1 it gives you good nutrition number 2 it allows you to have good bowel movement because constipation is very common in parkinson's disease having a good amount of fruits and vegetables will allow the amount of fiber content to go up that will allow you to have good bowel movement thirdly the fruits and vegetables also help with the the swallowing and chewing function of the patient so this allows the uh, upper part of your pharynx and also your mouth to be exercised so you get some good exercise by eating such food rather than eating always soft diet then finally the point about exercise yes overall maintaining good habits of daily exercise for about 30 minutes especially type of exercise where you're doing the same thing again and again repetitively doing the same exercise and not varying the different types of exercise will allow you to maintain good body structure muscle mass as well as cognitive learning task about the um, exercise so i will take a few seconds to deviate from the question just to answer that particular part what kind of exercise is best for parkinsons for you to keep on staying in the good uh, good way uh, answer to that is that exercise that allows you to have better motor control what do i mean by that when we start uh, walking as a child as a baby and when we start running or when we start learning to ride a bicycle our brain learns how to do this so there is an amount of learning process uh, to do a task so let's take the example of a child trying to ride a bicycle when the child first learns uh, initially there are mistakes made the child may lose balance but then the instructor or the teacher will hold the uh, bicycle and allow the child to gain the balance knowledge that knowledge is stored in the brain and the brain then has a program it says okay right foot down on the right pedal left foot down on the left pedal and hold the balance of the handle so on and so forth this programmed information after about 3 uh, to 4 weeks the child learns it can be executed without much thought sometimes people call this muscle memory but it has nothing to do with muscle it has to do with the brain the brain stores information on how to execute a motor task there are many such examples so for example dancing marching playing a musical instrument all these things require us to train our brain to do certain task in a specific order now once we learn it and we practice it a lot we can do it mindlessly you don't have to think about it think about when you are driving a car when you come to a stop sign you will automatically stop even though you may be talking on the phone or you may be listening to a radio show or if you are talking to a passenger in the car you can still function because your brain knows what to do when you come to a stop sign you stop look to the left look to the right make sure there is nothing there then you move on this is programmed in our head 
Now, what happens in Parkinson's disease is, unfortunately, this programmed information regarding movement is lost. So things that we routinely do without much thought is no longer possible. It is disrupted. It's slowed down. And automatic things that we normally do no longer happen. So the exercise we do is to try to bring back those motor programming, what we call cognitive physical therapy or cognitive gait therapy or cognitive uh, motor rehabilitation. This means rather than mindlessly doing exercise, doing mindful exercise, learning to do a task and doing it repeatedly so that the brain retrains itself and brings back that motor program. This is probably the most effective way to bring your uh, physical repertoire back. Uh, so the things that you normally like to do, playing golf, uh, driving, riding a bicycle, uh, just walking without losing balance, these kind of things can be restored by doing cognitive physical therapy, therapy that requires repetitively doing the same thing. So what does this mean practically? Practically means that when you are doing physical therapy or doing exercise in your home, try to do the same exercise again and again and again. Try not to vary the exercise. Now, this recommendation is different from other types of exercise you might have learned. So, for example, if you're going to lose weight or you're building fitness, many times they tell you to do different types of exercise so that there's a variety. One day walk, next day jump, third day do weights. Well, in Parkinson's disease, we need to do the same exercise again and again and again so that that motor programming is restored. Now, after the motor program is restored, you can change the exercise. So, for example, if you do it for six months and then after that you say, oh, that's good. So, let's go to a different exercise and do that for six months. So, this is a slightly different recommendation compared to how we normally recommend exercise. I hope this uh, explains the two ideas, good diet and good exercise, how that can help with maintaining good quality of life in Parkinson's disease. That's very interesting. And now the question here is, uh, to being a young onset Parkinson patient compared to an average age when diagnosed, are the amount of years to go through the stages different? That's a great question, and it's a complicated answer. So I'm going to try to answer it in two parts. So one is that, yes, so if you develop Parkinson's disease when you are younger, when you are in the 40s, as opposed to when you are 60s, uh, well, obviously, you're going to survive the disease longer. But the interesting fact is that most young onset Parkinson's disease is much slower in progression. It slowly progresses compared to more classic Parkinson's disease. The reason for this is not entirely clear. Uh, there's a lot of genetic work that's going on to see why that may be the case. But in general, it is noted that young onset Parkinson's patients are relatively intact for the first five to 10 years, and only then uh, they develop more progressive symptoms. As opposed to if you develop Parkinson's disease when you are in their 60s or late 60s, you tend to progress a little bit faster. The exact reason why this happens is not uh, clear yet. Uh, there is a group of researchers looking into potential reasons. One could be the fact that young people are more active they are physically doing things, uh, they are raising families, they are working full-time. So one idea is that if you do maintain a full repertoire of your motor activities by either working 
or pretending to work, if you are out of work already, then it might actually decelerate the progression of Parkinson's disease. It's just a theory. We don't know that for a fact. But it is indeed true that people who, young people who are working, if they stop working, uh, they get to retirement age or retire early, and no longer are active in any form of uh, work or activity, then they seem to deteriorate more. In my uh, clinical practice, I've seen that people who remain active, who do things, uh, who maintain a schedule, uh, they're either volunteering or they're doing hobbies or doing activity, they seem to do way better than people who do nothing. So there may be some uh, benefit to having a schedule and being active being actually physically doing things. There may be some benefit to it. It's interesting. And uh, I know you said that people don't reach the last two stages as often as they used to in stage five very infrequently. But is there a, a certain, uh, certain age, a certain age of the average person that gets Parkinson's? Right. So that, yeah. go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just wondering... Uh, what what happens to them at, at the the let's say they live a normal lifespan, uh-huh. the last end of their lifespan, which is total totally normal time time, what stage are they usually in? Right. So this is another very interesting question. So historically, uh, everybody who survived the disease and continued to survive the disease ended up in uh, stage four, stage five before levodopa was discovered. But once levodopa era came. And we also figured out how to do levodopa treatment correctly. And this took a while. It took about 20, 30 years of experimentation by different doctors and others to figure out how to dose levodopa correctly. And even now, today, in 2018, there are still patients who are not properly medicated. Most people are not told that they need to take medicine every four hours because of this relative short half-life. Um, so, but if it is given correctly and the patient uh, follows and are compliant with it, uh, many patients uh, continue to survive the disease well, well into their 80s. Uh, I have several patients who are in their late 80s and they're doing really well. Um, so age-wise, I think um, many of the patients are about the same median age as people who don't have Parkinson's disease and have good quality of life still ambulatory, still not in a wheelchair, still not placed in a nursing home, and still uh, moving well. Now, the second part of the question is what happens later on? What, what, is, what more is expected to happen? So there are more complications as you survive the disease longer. So for example, the longer you survive, the more the chance that you will have blood pressure issues, what we call autonomic dysfunction. There is a higher chance that you will have cognitive dysfunction where you could develop uh, some memory loss and so on and so forth. You could have more hallucinations. You could have bladder and bowel uh, dysfunction. Uh, You could have sexual dysfunction. Um, And there can also be um, occasionally psychiatric problems like serious depression, anxiety, so on and so forth. But the good news again is that um, as we have learned more about Parkinson's disease and we have recognized that Parkinson's is not just a motor problem, and there are a lot of non-motor issues. We have found exceptionally good medications now for the treatment of all these complications. So if you use a judicious combination of medicines that allow you to do well motorically and also maintain a good diet and do good exercise, and then if need be, 
whenever the need arises, treat all these other complications with appropriate treatments. For example, if the blood pressure is variable, then use medications that work for that. And there are several medicines for that. Uh, or if you're hallucinating, you can give medicines that block the hallucinations. Or if you have um, depression, then the depression can be treated, so on and so forth. For each of those conditions, there are now fairly effective treatments that will maintain high quality of life. So even though the disease itself has not been modified, because of our treatment abilities and our ability to manage symptoms really well, quality of life can be maintained. And many people are able to maintain a very high level of quality of life into the late stages of disease. That has been my experience. That's, that's good news. So uh, you could live a normal life, and at the end, who knows whether you would have had those issues anyway. They may, it may not all be from Parkinson's. Correct. So I think that is right. And even if it is related to Parkinson's, it's treatable. Uh, in terminal, and that's another question that frequently somebody asks, Dr. Sue, how am I going to die? Am I going to die from Parkinson's disease? The answer to that is uh, we know from all these years that Parkinson's itself doesn't kill anybody. So the cause of death at the time of death is not really Parkinson's. So what are the common causes of people dying with Parkinson's? Is other, other things. So if they have a heart attack, they die from a heart attack because they live long enough. But uh, two things that uh, we have to worry about in Parkinson's is one, choking on food, what we call aspiration pneumonia. So that happens when the upper part of your pharynx no longer works well. And again, we have to be cognizant about it with modern treatment, with medications that can be solved. Most people don't have aspiration pneumonia. It's a preventable cause of death in Parkinson's disease. And then the last one is falling. So fall prevention is also very important. So if you fall and you break a bone, that is an obvious reason to have injuries and that can lead to death. But fall also causes other, other types of problems. For example, there is a condition called subdural hematoma where your brain inside the skull moves and as a result, it shears some of the veins and resulting in bleeding between the skull and the brain. And that can be a silent killer that can be sitting there for many, many months or even a year or two and eventually you can come down with seizures and so on and so forth. And this can happen with the trivial falls, minor falls, which you don't even recognize as a possibility of causing such injury. So two messages. One message is that uh, you should prevent falls at all costs. And we do this every time. So doing the exercise, like I mentioned, is a good way to prevent falls. And also taking medicine on time and being compliant will also prevent falls. So two things you can do to prevent the fall. And then as far as diet, again, we mentioned having a good mix of nutritious food, but also having fruits and vegetables that you eat every day, exercising those muscles in the back of the throat uh, will allow you to prevent uh, problems of aspiration pneumonia. Also taking your time to eat and not hurrying up and watching how you eat your food and drinking plenty of water, six to eight glasses of water every day to keep yourself hydrated. Those things will also prevent aspiration. Now beyond that, if there is a risk of choking, you should definitely bring it up with your doctor we can think about other ways of modifying your diet or helping you with your swallowing problems. But bottom line, the two reasons why people die, one is choking, meaning aspiration pneumonia. The other one is the falling and complications. But neither of those things are directly related to Parkinson's. 
So it's Parkinson's is not the cause of death. You don't die from Parkinson's, but you die as a consequence of other things that happen from Parkinson's. I hope I'm clear about this. Yes, Dr. Soup, is there something that uh, is actually protective by having Parkinson's? As I've read in the literature that you're less of a chance of getting a stroke because um, your, your blood pressure is artificially lowered in, in Parkinson's disease. This is largely true. Um, it seems like uh, there are fewer patients with Parkinson's disease who develop strokes. Uh, there are also uh, some growing literature that perhaps having a slightly higher cholesterol level is protective against Parkinson's disease, although it's not entirely clear whether that protection is due to the cholesterol, is due to some other reasons we don't know. We're still investigating that. But um, yes, it is true that in general, Parkinson patients uh, do well overall with their cardiovascular health. Um, there are fewer heart attacks and fewer strokes uh, if you have Parkinson's disease. But it's not entirely 100%. You know, nobody should think, oh, I won't get a heart attack, or nobody should think I will never get a stroke if I have Parkinson's. That's not the case. It's relative. Uh, it's a relative difference between. Now, along those same lines, there are some other risk factors. So, for example, melanoma, which is a cancer that affects the skin, uh, the higher risk for that when you have Parkinson's disease. So, you have to be more vigilant when you go to your family doctor once a year for your annual checkup. You should be checked everywhere, especially your axilla, your groin, your eyes, uh, uh, behind your people have long hair. In look in the scalp to make sure there is no melanoma there. Uh, toes and nails have to be checked um, uh, to make sure there is no melanoma there. So melanoma can be a silent killer and uh, it's particularly more common in light-skinned people. So if you're light-skinned and uh, you live in uh, Northern America, you're higher risk for melanoma. Also sunlight exposure, as we know, if you don't put uh, sun tanning lotion when you go for tanning, that can make you at higher risk for getting not only sunburn, but also melanoma. So, yes, yeah, so there are protections and there are also risks. So I just gave one risk and I also talked about one protection. Okay. And uh, this question came from the website. Can having deep brain stimulation have an effect on reaching the final stage of, of Parkinson's? Could, could, it, could it cause you to run through them quicker? Hmm. No, so there is no evidence that it makes it go faster. Uh, the opposite has been investigated. So there has been a study in which they did deep brain stimulation in earlier stages of disease to see whether it will slow down the progression of Parkinson's disease. That study so far has not uh, grown fruit in the sense that it hasn't shown that it will um, decelerate the progression of disease uh, conclusively. There is an evidence that the quality of life may be slightly better if you undergo DBS earlier as opposed to waiting much later. But again, this is being challenged. Uh, the, there is some debate on whether that is actually true or not. There is no evidence that DBS actually makes you uh, progress faster. However, it's important to recognize that some complications of DBS surgery could make it look like you have more worsening of symptoms. So for example, uh, there is good evidence that uh, DBS can make you cognitively more impaired. So if you didn't have surgery before and then you had surgery, 
especially if you are vulnerable for worsening of your uh, cognition, you could potentially worsen for it. You just have to be cautious. So we generally do extensive testing of patients to make sure that they don't have cognitive impairments before they undergo DPS. So if they even under they undergo DPS, then we kind of watch and make sure that it's reversible and it doesn't create much more problems. So we have to be careful how we interpret the data of whether DPS makes you progress faster. There's no concrete evidence for it. Uh, carefully done, selected patients with good surgical technique, there should not be any worsening of Parkinsonism. However, we have to watch out for these complications and when the complications occur, it can appear to make the disease progress faster. Good. Okay, so I think we uh, took a subject that most people shy away from because it's not, it's kind of depressing, but I think we gave a balanced approach to it that showed that it's not all bad. And uh, Dr. Soup, you want to take the last word on that? Well, I want to thank Warren for bringing up these challenging questions and asking these wonderful uh, set of questions. I hope uh, uh, the audience uh, can give us some very good feedback on um, what further things we should talk about. I enjoy these sessions. Uh, thank you very much for Warren and uh, have a pleasant weekend. Thank you.